0: Um, who has um, written uh, a chapter jointly in our book with Simon Johnson. Uh, Peter uh, is in the Center for Economic Performance at LSE. He's also chairman of a charity um, called Effective Intervention, doing health and education work in India and Africa. Um, and Simon Johnson, not here today. Uh, He's professor at MIT and um, a member of the Peterson Institute in Washington. Um, And Peter is going to address the question, will the politics of moral hazard sink us again? Peter. Thank you. Um, Is this working? Yeah, it's working.
1: Thank you very much, and and, uh, I want to thank you all for coming, but also thank, thank Paul uh, for arranging this, as, as everyone else says, we had had a great uh, series of sessions over the last year. And after listening to Martin today, I, I think, Paul, uh, you were very smart to leave finance a few years ago uh, and to keep everything you had. Um, and likewise, uh, ri- oh,
0: I've lost some of it already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> R- R- Richard, um, I, I first met in the central committee of the communist party former headquarters in 1991 and it was a cold winter day and he was I walked into this office and there was this this British gentleman and he was an advisor to the prime minister in Russia on their reforms and um, so it's absolutely amazing to watch Richard move from place to place and here he is today working on financial reforms and we just have to hope they go a lot better over the next 10 years uh, than Russia went over 1991 to 2001 Um, (laughs) But anyway, I'm I'm here, and I'm going to talk about this, uh, will the politics of global moral hazard sink us again? Um, And I'm going to be very negative. I'm going to say um, yes, probably. Um, And many people have talked about reasons why, and I'll I'll go through the reasons we think it will uh, sink us again. Um, Most important, uh, we've broadly proven around the world over the last couple of years uh, that we bail out private creditors generally generally. There's a lot of big institutions, and we've decided they all need to be bailed out, and we also bail out governments, and we definitely bail out quasi-state organizations. Uh, That gives these organizations an advantage now. Uh, They know they've got the advantage, and creditors know they've got the advantage, and it's a much bigger force to fight going forward than it was two years ago. Two years ago, it wasn't obvious they got bailed out. Now it's absolutely obvious that many of them get bailed out. The only question is, can we keep bailing them out? but we do know that our system is set up that we'll keep bailing them out. This, of course, gives rise to the moral hazard problems that we've been talking about. Martin, Charles, others uh, basically saying, you know, maybe we need to change limited to limited liability or other types of things within banks in order to reduce that moral hazard. Uh, but, but we're a long way off from doing that. Um, and if we don't do that, obviously it's gonna keep growing bigger and, and we risk having in the future greater financial crises. I'd say the institutional reform that we're looking at now and talked about, we probably could have sat in this room in 1982 with Basel I or 19, early 1990s with Basel II. And talked about all the same things and had would hoped it was gonna change. Um, and it didn't change, actually, as we see now, it only got worse. And so I, I'm gonna go through and talk about why it's getting worse. Um, I wanna first talk about how the size is getting bigger of this problem. Secondly, give some case studies to show you how we're all interconnected in the globe. In all this, and then thirdly, um, after those case studies, discuss what Simon and I call the, the doomsday cycle, and finally uh, talk about what what would need to be done to change that. Some things, and then basically say that's that's not what we're doing at the moment. So, let me start first about the size of the moral hazard problem. Um, there are people we bail out, and then we created agencies that will bail out those people plus others, and we don't know who the others are. Um, but credit markets know that, and so you, you lend more cheaply to the ones who will probably get bailed out. These are the two big-to-fail banks, the quasi-sovereigns, as I mentioned, interconnected entities, regional partners, Abu Dhabi and Dubai World. There's no way Dubai World could have borrowed as much as they did were it not for the fact that creditors implicitly or, or thought implicitly those, they would get bailed out. Eurozone members, um, who would have guessed the Eurozone would bail out everybody um, and all 1,400-plus commercial banks? IMF, now we know they have a trillion of capital and they've just expanded it, but I think at the upcoming G20 meeting, strauss is talking about a new flexible facility that will be easier to access than the previous ones, and it's got to be a lot larger because it's designed for Europe. Um, so we're going to have a lot more capital, in theory, coming out of the IMF. Then we have agency debt in the U.S. We all know how, how that evolved. And then uh, one of my – I always find whenever you look more closely at anything, you find another implicit guarantee. But, but insurance guarantee associations around the world, pension funds, etc. you find in a lot of countries these are implicitly guaranteed. Now, just to think quantitatively, I've, I've tried to estimate here very conservatively what the numbers might be. But uh, too big to fail banks, maybe $50 uh, trillion in, in Europe and the United States of implicit guarantees, quasi-sovereign and other things – at another 10 or so. Um, And when you add up all these implicit guarantees at the moment, they add up to 72 trillion, somewhere around 2.5 times GDP. Well, our governments cannot afford really to bail all that out. So we've just got to hope it doesn't all fail. Uh, But we've got to hope it also doesn't expand. And as I said, both the numbers are expanding and the amounts available to each one are expanding at the moment. So we need very, very strong regulation to stop it since we're not using market mechanisms, which would be default. Well, let me give you uh, four simple case studies that we'll go through with some lessons and then talk at the end about, about what some solutions would be. And I'm going to use pictures because I'm the very last one. Right? So this is Iceland. Uh, there was a recent volcano, but I'm not referring to that volcano. It's the volcano previous in 2008, I guess, when uh, their system blew up. Um, Iceland, I don't, I don't think in 2000 any of us would have thought Iceland would shake the financial world, uh, but it did in 2008. It caused a lot of contagion issues, etc. Now, how did that happen? Well, to happen, somebody had to lend to the banks. As you know, they built up about ten times GDP in loans. Um, and here are the culprits. Uh, it started off in Europe. This is according to their Truth Commission report. The banks were able to borrow a lot out from European banks. Um, then those banks got a bit nervous about Iceland having a couple times GDP in bank liabilities. They were happy to give, though, because Iceland had no debt at the sovereign level. It seemed ideal, right? Each individual bank looked fine uh, because they knew the sovereign had no debt. They could bail out the sovereign, so the creditors kept lending to the banks. Well, then, then that stopped, um, but there was a new thing that was possible to exploit. In the U.S., we had CDO Squares, et cetera, uh, Icelandic debt, for technical reasons, was a very good thing to package with other debt. It had high credit ratings and high yields because investors were nervous about it, but the credit agencies were not. So it was packaged into all that debt for quite a while. They raised more money, uh, and then they came here. And because of international treaty, it was possible to raise money in the deposit market, and IceSafe grew up to become a very big bank. And now it's notorious, of course. Uh, the damage done is not just the losses, of course, uh, in all the different investors that took on that debt. The, the blue, I should say, is the growth of external debt in Ireland. And when it reaches... In, and that's, I'm sorry, the blue is all the banks' external debt. The other lines are other external debt, and the, the, the total there is the sum of all external debt. So it grew up um, and then it collapsed where you see the blue line falling down and that's when they went bankrupt and you got a few cents on the dollar on your credits. Um, for the investors. But the losses here were not just for the investors, of course. The losses were also in the UK banking system and in Nordic country banking systems, because these people competed for capital, and they drove up interest rates. So back at home, we got a letter the other day, a a year ago, I think, from Westminster Council explaining that they had uh, a little over 10 million pounds deposited with one of the Icelandic banks, and they were hoping they would get it back. Um, They competed with other banks and caused damage in your financial system. And so global finance, obviously it's interconnected, but you can't rely on goodwill when asking that each nation regulates itself well. And frankly, we are at the moment with the G20 and the FSB relying on goodwill all the way into the future. This was one small country. Who knows who the next Iceland is? Now, the next chart, I've gone through a lot of emerging market crises. We always try to find the the golden bullet that would sort of magic bullet that would make you all better. Um, So Canada is talked about as a magic bullet, um, and I know it well because I was born there. Um, The magic bullet, Paul Krugman said, we need to learn from those countries that evidently did it right, Um, and leading that list now is our neighbor to the north. Right now, Canada is a very important role model. (laughs) So could we use a Canadian regulatory system uh, to to solve our problems? The arguments people give for it are limited leverage. They had higher capital requirements than others. They avoided securitization. Why is a big question. Um, And then something that, that Larry Summers in the U.S. often talks about, maybe having five large banks that trade profits in return for strong regulation is the way to make the system inherently a lot safer. Yeah, it'll be more costly, but at least they'll, they'll want to survive, so they'll want to be safe. Well, on that second point, this is the uh, president of Toronto Dominion, which is the second biggest bank in Canada. It's one of my favourite quotes uh, over the last year. Uh, he was saying this to debt investors when he was trying to sell them some debt from Toronto Dominion. He was going out on an investor roadshow, and he said, maybe not explicitly, but what are the chances that TD Bank will not be bailed out if it did something stupid? Well... That's a stupid comment, right? It got a lot of trouble in the press forum and everything because, of course, that's too big to fail. You you can't do stupid things. And so it just shows these banks need to be regulated very, very carefully. Um, TD Bank is one of the banks now that wants to expand globally uh, quite aggressively uh, on the back of uh, their success so far through this crisis. Well, the other issue in Canada that people don't look at, and as I said, when you start looking at things closely, you realize the problems in our financial systems. Um, The reason Canadian banks are safe is that the government guarantees all the riskiest mortgages. If you want to get a higher than 80% loan-to-value mortgage in Canada, you must have insurance. And the government offers relatively cheap insurance, and so everybody uses the government insurance. So every time somebody goes in and gets a loan at 90% loan-to-value or 100% loan-to-value in Canada, other taxpayers are taking that risk, right? It's not the bank. The bank is selling it off to the government, who obviously is taking the risk. That is an enormously dangerous system. We've seen how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and many other systems like that fall apart. Um, This is not a safe system to mimic. It's a system that requires very strong regulation, and so... I met someone at the Bank of Canada who was quite high up and I asked him uh, why do you think Canada managed to do things so well uh, despite this enormous moral hazard in the system. And he said well back in the Great Depression uh, Canadians grew to hate banks and so from then on they were very tough on the banking system. Um, And it's an interesting idea but you would never guess it from the recent history of regulation in Canada. What I've shown here is the tier one capital ratios of the major banks. Um, They're all identical. Um, And you can see this statement by Krugman and many others that Canadian banks had high capital ratios ahead of the crisis is definitely correct. Uh, They were up around 10%, 11%. That's actually where Lehman was when it went under, but it's higher than most other banks. Um, But prior to that, Canadian banks had very low capital. Back in the early 90s, 6%. The reason they built up like this was there was a big commodity contraction. Prices fell. In the middle of recessions, banks tend to build up capital, and that's what happened. What's more striking is you see that little period where they start to fall. That's when oil prices rose and metals prices rose, and the Canadian credit system started growing fast. For over two and a half years from 2005, it grew at about 20% annual pace, 50% in total. Um, That, of course, is the level of growth, which is dangerous. Um, And I think they would have gone to a very dangerous credit growth. There was also a change of government, which eased the regulation. They would have had dangerous credit growth had it not been for the fact that the rest of the world collapsed. So the basic conclusion in our chapter from that is there's no magic bullet. All types of regulatory systems failed. They all suffer the same deep incentive problems, no matter how you design them, um, and they can eventually cause systems to blow up. So the next example I want to give is Ireland. Ireland. Ireland, uh, in the 90s, as you all know, grew very fast. And I I think Andy Haldane had a chart up showing the total factor of productivity growth from 2000 to 2008 or so was very, very high in the financial sector in Ireland. Well, it was high because they joined the Eurozone. And when you join the Eurozone, it's great. You get access to cheap credit. It's no wonder everybody wants to join. Banking systems must really love it, right? You get access to an emergency lender, Um, As a matter of fact, some people suggested Iceland should join the Eurozone towards the end of their their, uh, growth period. Um, But you get access access to emergency lender if you need it. You also get uh, implicit support, which allows you to raise money elsewhere. And so if you have a weak system, it's like a litmus test. It it shows you you've got a weak system because your credit will start to grow very fast. Um, This is one country. Of course, there's 16 in the Eurozone, and it's growing. Anyway, that's what happened with Ireland. They got access to the credit system. The banks started to grow very, very quickly. It had nothing to do with derivatives, anything like that. It was just standard mortgage lending. And mortgage lending, etc. drove the banks' debt uh, on their balance sheets from one times to 3.75 times GMP. Now, people felt safe lending to them because the Eurozone was helping them and also because the sovereign didn't have very much debt. Now, what happened when it all fell apart? Of course, the government can't really afford to support all the banks if the loss on property is, is big. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but the, bank, the government has gone ahead and said they will back up all the debt of the banks. So the creditors were right so far that they would get paid back even if the banks failed after this massive bubble. And what we've done here, and just updated this, is show you Ireland's public debt to GMP... And I'm, this is GNP, which is a, I'm not going to explain what I mean by that, but it's it's not GDP, and it's the right measure. Um, which we've included in it that the Irish government has brought, de, bought developing uh, development loans, commercial property, etc., uh, from the banking system, and added about 40 percent of GDP to their debt GNP. But they also Uh, are running a 15% GMP budget deficit this year, and I don't quite see how they're going to get it down. Employment's still falling and GMP is still falling. And this shows you where their debt path will go uh, based on the idea that gradually they reduce their budget deficits over the next few years. And it looks worse than Greece, right? And the reason it looks worse than Greece is they're taking on all the assets of the banking system which were blown up over this past period. If they were Russia in 1998, they would have already defaulted and be done with it. Kazakhstan had a similar problem. They've defaulted, written down the loans. They're done with it. Being part of the EU uh, uh, means a different responsibility. They don't want to cause the contagion of causing their commercial banks to fall, but they also have access to the money to bail them out. And we'll just see whether they survive. But it's like Greece. It's an unbearable burden of debt, I would suspect, over time. So access to capital will, from time to time, become easy, and we must expect it will find its way to the nation's most desiring across the globe to use it, but some of those will abuse it um, or at least have problems and, in retrospect. And will capital be better or worse allocated in the future? We just don't know. But what we do know is that there's going to be many more problems like this in the future because we didn't know you would get bailed out fully in the Eurozone in the past. Now we know. Right? The regulators need to be a lot tougher going forward. And so let me end with the Eurozone, Um, thinking with its moral hazard issues. This brings back the old Russia days to me. In 1992, uh, the IMF sent a team to Russia, and they said, let's maintain the ruble zone in the former Soviet Union. And the Russians said, okay, how will we do that? And the IMF said, well, we'll have central banks in each of the new nations, um, and they'll each issue rubles, uh, but we'll have a, a plan and every year we'll control the plan, we'll have quarterly controls and everything. And the Russians listened and thought about it, and at the end of it all, they—they they, uh, there you have them, they said, no chance, right? And the reason they said no chance is because you have to trust each of the characters in the ruble zone, right? So you have Yeltsin would, would have to trust Nazarbayev and, and Lukashenko and Kravchuk, and they didn't trust each other, obviously. Um, and so the Russians said, either we control money issue fully, or we won't have a ruble zone. And everybody agreed, fine, we won't trust the Russians to control it, so we won't have a ruble zone. And that, that was why the ruble zone ended. Now the eurozone um, has this problem. In the euro zone, uh, uh, a government can issue bonds, uh, their commercial banks can buy the bonds, and then the commercial banks can always repo them for finance at the ECB. And there's basically no limit to this at the moment, certainly no limit for Greece. And the implication, of course, is that it's always safe to lend money to the central government. It's also safe to lend money to the banks, because you can do that in reverse. We're seeing in a lot of countries now the banks, I mean, sorry, the governments bail out the banks who are in trouble. So it's a a deeply, inherently troubled problem. And, of course, the reason that the Eurozone, and we have coal and on there, the reason that The Eurozone actually managed uh, to uh, be formed was that people weren't thinking about the moral hazard problems of the system or the deep incentive flaws in the system. They were thinking more about creating this as part of a grand program, which obviously is a a terrific program in many ways. But it shows that at times uh, and important times, politics does trump prudency for our global financial systems and we're all linked into it. The Eurozone uh, was designed with deep flaws in place the hope was growth and stability packs and things like that would prevent them from emerging. Of course, people understood that wouldn't prevent it, but it's meant to be a transition to something better. And we're still in that transition and everybody is suffering the risks of it. And so to be fair, let me end with, with the United States. And, uh, and this chart is what gets me worried uh, when I look at it. The black line is total credit divided by GDP. Uh, in the United States, and it's roughly tripled over 30 years. Everybody's talked about this, about how it's, you know, inefficient, various things potentially behind it. We don't know, but there's certainly a big growth of leverage um, going on, partly incentivized by moral hazard, partly by the tax system, various things, um, and it keeps growing. Meanwhile, every time there's a problem, we bail it out with our macroeconomic policy, right? We lower interest rates and we ease credit policy. And so I've marked on there the savings and loan crisis, the long-term capital management bailout, the tech bubble, the subprime bubble, and sequentially interest rates keep going down and down and down. And the recoveries, as you know, take longer and longer and longer. Now we're down to a zero interest rate, and we've got the biggest budget deficit we've ever had. If I had the budget deficit here, you'd see the same thing. We simply can't keep doing this, right? If this trend is the correct trend, that it's only going to get worse, uh, then we're in deep trouble. And and I think many people today have have mentioned that in different ways. So that gives rise to what we call the the global uh, doomsday cycle. And if you think, where are we at the moment? We're in the top left corner. Uh, We've gone through a crisis, and we're tightening regulation and and promoting more prudency um, in both the financial affairs and in the the fiscal side. Um, Well, you only have the big incentive to lobby against regulation when it exists, so, yes, the banks lobbied heavily to prevent it from existing. Once it exists, if you create a nice steep yield curve because you, you really make sure maturity mismatch is, is monitored at the banks, they have enormous incentive in such a liquid market to find ways to get around it. So that's the next stage. We're not there yet, but we, we're creating the new regulation. We'll create it, and then the bankers are going to have a, a, a real uh, hard time. It's going to be a major focus, naturally. That's their incentive to try to break down that regulation. Well, I'd say break it down. Uh, Some nations, it'll break down faster than others because some nations have weaker regulators. Our politicians like a credit cycle. There'd be nothing better than having housing grow quite quickly and price, et cetera, ahead of an election. So why not, right? Well, one breaks it down. Banks will go to their own regulators and say, look, things are good. Those guys have much easier regulation than us. You're destroying our our sector. Please ease up on our regulation. And that will happen, and we'll have the old race to the bottom again. (laughs) Um, and then the losses will happen, and who knows where they'll come from next time, right? There'll be another Iceland, another Ireland, there'll be other countries. If it happens in the big countries, which it very well could, then it will be a global crisis. Um, the only interesting thing is we always make sure we have uh, people in place who are ready to bail out the system. And so, I, I, you know, as, as, as we know, people, uh, Ben Bernanke, Trichet, strauss et cetera, are prepared and really believe in the idea you bail at the system. And that's what makes it all work. You make sure those type of people are in charge of regulation and the banking and the monetary policy, et cetera, and the whole thing keeps functioning. The only problem with this is that underlying it, the credit keeps growing and growing and growing, and our intervention to stop each crisis becomes more and more dramatic, and we don't know what will happen next. Uh, but it, you should put great concern over it, obviously. So... Well, how would you think about ending this? Like, what would be the main, main things? And there's many different ways to address it, and, and I, I must say I really uh, benefit a lot from people in our group on, on these issues. But I, I want to mention five things. First, I made the point that we're very interconnected in the globe, and you can't have voluntary arrangements over regulation. I just don't believe that works. You need to have something much more fixed. That's why we have the WTO for free trade, and it makes a lot of sense for financial regulation. We, we all be less. It makes a lot of sense for financial regulation. We need to set up rules so that we have minimum levels of capital, minimum uh, liquidity requirements, et cetera, across countries. And then when you realize we need to do that, you also need to have sanctions, as was discussed today. You need to have other um, supervisory bodies that look over it all and make sure it's all working. It's a very momentous task to do it and not something where there's political will at the moment to do it. Uh, but I don't really see how we, we get out of these crises without uh, reducing that incentive for the race to the bottom by having some sort of treaties and monitoring of each other's behavior. Secondly, uh, cross-border macroprudential supervision. Somebody should be out raising the flag, and, and Andrew has talked about this a lot, one of the Andrews, Andrew Large. Um, but you need to raise the flag that uh, this is a dangerous system for the world, right? And the U.S. has dangerous systems, Canada does, Europe does, uh, we need to discuss all those. And we should have it in the discussion and quantify it and make people understand it and make people aware of it so there is a debate rather than keeping it quiet. Um, thirdly, discouraging debt. I mean, that, that growth in credit is partly driven by the fact that we don't tax debt, but we do tax profits. Uh, why not end the system of, of incentivizing debt by for corporates, etc.? Uh, by taxing uh, uh, the debt also, taxing interest. So if, if, don't make it a deductible from, from operating surplus. If you did that for profit tax purposes, if you did that, you would reduce the incentive to accumulate debt. You would level the playing field between debt and equity. That would help bring more equity into the, into the country or into the, the system. And, and Andrew Smithers has talked a lot about that. We need to let defaults happen, um, That's more easily said than done, but one way you can – I mean, we've seen how they don't happen. We created instruments that were meant to share equity losses in banks, and it didn't work with these Tier 1 instruments. Um, We could let defaults happen by creating instruments that really do share in the losses quickly. Um, So, for example, equity does that very well, but you could have contingent capital, other ways to to make – debt effectively turn into default. Um, you can also reduce obviously uh, defined benefit pension systems and move them to defined contribution. And finally uh, depoliticizing financial regulation. And I won't go into that but breaking up banks so they're smaller and less able, able to lobby um, and also taking regulators out of finance and vice versa. In the United States the regulators and the financial system they go back and forth. There's a revolving door. So. That, that's the end. Um, I, I would say of those five measures, none of them really are being implemented. There's little bits of it, but really it's not. Um, so it's hard to believe we've stopped the deep incentives in our system for regulation to break down after we bring it up again and for banks, et cetera, to build up their leverage, leverage and lobby and for credit to be growing, growing just because we incentivize debt in many different ways through the tax system as well as through our moral hazard Um, So given all that, uh, we feel there is a real danger, of course, that we'll have another much larger crisis in the future. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Peter. You ended bang on time but talked yourself out of questions. But (laughs) since we're moving to the general Q&A session now, we'll do a bit of scene changing. Stay put, and you can challenge us all.